Empire is the sole destiny of our race. We shall make any sacrifice, pay any price that destiny be fulfilled. The most brilliant supernova pales beside the glow of our greatness. We shall soar fearlessly among the stars, crushing all who oppose us. You are cosmic flotsam, the refuse of the universe. To the cities, the centers of civilization must be the first of all. From out of the void, we sail on the star winds, unfaltering, undaunted, and unconquerable. Ravagers of worlds, plunderers of suns, masters of the universe. We shall build an empire on the bodies of the lesser races we annihilate. Die, Terran swine! Fall and burn before the might of your betters in the galaxy! Marching, killing, on world, star, and moon. Ours is the far-flung brotherhood. Scum of all the scum of space, we loathe you most of all. Your posturing disgusts us and embarrasses you. Paramecia, galactic bacteria, that is what you are. Behold our power, Terran, as you die. Welcome to Artifacts of Infinity, where we dive into the infinite abyss of Marvel's cosmic universe. I'm Jonathan Hudson. And I'm Everett Christensen. This is episode 18, and today we will be covering Giant Size Defenders number 5 and Defenders 26 through 29. This episode will be coming to you unscripted, as I am going to be moving soon. My family is moving from the West Coast uh, back east, and so we're trying to build up a bit so we have as small a lull as possible. This episode is about the Badoon, extraterrestrial bad dudes from our first Guardians of the Galaxy coverage back in episode 14. We've got a time travel team up for you that goes into excruciating detail about how terrible the Badoon are. We'll get started with Giant Size Defenders number 5, Elar Moves in Mysterious Ways, written by Steve Gerber, Jerry Conway, Roger Sliffer, Lynn Wynn, Chris Claremont, Scott Edelman, penciled by Don Heck, inks by Mike Esposito, Jim Mooney, David Hunt, colors by George Russos, lettered by David Hunt and Artie Simic, edited by Lynn Wynn, and cover by Art Wilson, Al Milgram, and Dan Crespi. So this cover is delightful, as we have today's Monster of the Week, Elar, on the cover. He's grasping Valkyrie in one hand as Doctor Strange blasts him with mystic bolts. Hulk and Charlie 27 leap towards him from below. He's blasting Martinex. Yondu's unconscious. This whole thing is delightfully busy and the chaos that we see on this cover is only echoed in the pages within we start out in a abandoned street at night as a pawn shop close up we have some local ruffians getting ready to rob the poor pawn shop owner and as the owner closes up shop he realizes that he's in danger so he takes off running and they chase him down and get ready to do some stabbing now above this very personal violence we have dr strange hulk and valkyrie three members of the defenders flying above them and it's kind of in a funny fashion dr strange is using the agamotto to sky tow the hulk through the air and they are investigating a bright light in the middle of the ocean that is causing some sort of disturbance that they're trying to investigate. Uh, Doctor Strange says that it's a temporal displacement vibration, and so they are trying to figure out what is disrupting the flow of time. It's not long before, as once they get to the glow, the water erupts, and... The sea goes everywhere, and there are just tons of fish seemingly attacking people. And Hulk doesn't want this. Hulk has to fight fish? Still sounds stupid to Hulk. Get back into water, dumb fish! 
I Hulk is doing so like delightfully just right out the gate. Hulk would be great at cinema sins. Yeah. Hulk is a whole mood in these issues and I am not normally the biggest Hulk fan in the world, but Steve Gerber is so fun with his voice that he is truly enjoyable. Now, Stephen Strange is attempting to close in on the source of the temporal kerfuffle, and a hand just reaches out of the water and sucks the Sorcerer Supreme under, and it turns out to be Elar. There's a strange eel-man hybrid who crackles with electrical charge, and it causes steven to black out for just a second we go back to the toughies sticking up this poor pawn shop owner and a person steps out a little bit but he's still hidden by shadows saying that they need to stop what they're doing and they need to leave peacefully or else these guys are not convinced and they stab the pawn shop owner and at that moment our mysterious shadowed hero leaps out fighting them and roughs up two of them and toughy number three is like hey man i got no beef with you let me go and charlie 27 steps out of the shadows and says that he's committed salt on a on a fellow human and that is the ultimate treason and he's got to pay for that now now the Assaulter tries to stab Charlie 27 and just breaks his knife. And Charlie 27 just kind of like casually waves one hand to move him aside and knocks the guy out with a clud. Charlie 27 immediately goes to check up on the poor stabbed man. And Charlie 27 laments that a human-on-human violence could even happen in this era. As far as he's concerned, he needs to get this guy to a hospital immediately because letting even one human life not be saved is unacceptable when there are so few humans left in the future of the Guardians of the Galaxy. We return to the Defenders, and Doctor Strange floats to the surface as Valkyrie swoops down and and saves him, scooping him up onto Aragorn. And they fly over and land on a boat to join the Hulk as Elar flies away. So, Elar is going to attack New York. And Valkyrie is trying to convince the Hulk to help. Hulk is only helping because Valkyrie is Hulk's friend. And... Is this Valkyrie still alive in the mainline universe, do you know? Because I don't think this is the Valkyrie that we have right now. Uh, no, it is not, in fact, the Valkyrie that we have right now. No, but this Valkyrie, like, just died in War of the Realms? That's correct. She dies at the end of War of the Realms, and that's when Jane Foster takes over as Valkyrie. You know, that Valkyrie and Hulk hadn't interacted for such an incredibly long time even before that happened, I think that that was something that just got missed. I think this is another one of those cases of a good relationship between characters slipping between the cracks just through the lack of Valkyrie getting used on a regular basis through the uh, like mid-2000s to the 2010s. Yeah, and that and the, the tendency to not have Hulk on a team definitely leads to that yes yes that is that is a that's a new thing that is a new thing hulk not being on teams is definitely a product of the 2000s i think that needs to be looked at moving forward i quite i quite like hulk on teams you know i always liked that uh, he doesn't really work out on the Avengers early on, but when he when he gets to the Defenders, he's got you know bumpy times with them, but he seems to fit in pretty well with that band of unofficial heroes or or unofficial team structure. He, he seems to work better there, and I really like that. 
So we return to upstate New York where we meet Nighthawk, who is a member of the Defenders I know almost nothing about. So I am the cosmic rookie in this podcast. So reading this through, my prediction is that Nighthawk is going to be Starhawk, who I know is coming up in this story. That's my prediction going in. And I don't know how it's going to happen but I'm pretty sure they're the same person. Well, the important part is is that as he flies through the skies of New York, he sees a aircraft of some kind, and it crashes several miles away in the woods. Now, the people on the ground being Marvel citizens are like, that's a flying saucer, we're being invaded by someone, which... Fair. Like, let's think about all the other times we've already covered where that exact thing has gone down. Sure. But we see there's one young man who is not terrified of being invaded. He seems more curious than anything else. Well, something else I like is they kind of mostly go to business as usual pretty quickly. And... Honestly, that kind of feels more realistic in this world that we live in. They're like, oh, oh no, we're being invaded by aliens. Oh, well, I got to get to work in 10 minutes. Yes. These are Marvel civilians. I At some point, they not only got used to it, but they became resentful towards the constant interruptions. Yeah, they just want to get about their life and knock off this nonsense. We leave that scene and join this absolute scumbag of a toll booth operator who's packing heat for some reason in case he's got to shoot somebody down over the $1.25 toll booth. And he's showing off his bit pistol, pointing it at his co-worker, who is very reasonably concerned about this. This guy has no trigger discipline. None at all. Is on the trigger. That is so problematic. Yeah, this guy is is truly a scummy work of something. I don't know. But they hear commotion coming from the tunnel that they are uh, tolling, and they go to investigate, and of course, our scummy anti-hero forges into the tunnel gun out finger on trigger trying to figure out what's going on so they get deep into the tunnel and all of a sudden they start feeling water and they're like the ceiling is cracking it's the entire river is pouring in and we get this great panel where we see elar standing on the bottom of what I assume is the Hudson River, as he directs thousands of fish to act as a living battering ram to destroy the concrete roof of the subway under the river. I mean, I I lack words to express how silly this particular concept is to add to the whole thing as you may guess the dialogue from the beginning is coming from elar so what every time he's around you get these crazy cobra commander declarative statements going on our race is supreme conquer we must for our might makes it just as he attacks the tunnel with fish you know and the the rhyming and the complete madness of elar are totally just bring out how zonkers this storyline is so the (laughs) the tunnel caves in and there's fish like everywhere 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 and and the only the only thing that the the guy who is a toll booth operator with a gun who wants to become a cop has to say on the matter is, how can I shoot at fish? <laughs> His buddy, who is far more reasonable, tells him that they've got to get out of there. They're going to drown. And when 
Mr. Pistol refuses to respond. He's like, all right, well, I'll find somebody to come for you, Freddy. Good luck, and takes off. So the people that he ends up running across are, of course, the Defenders. Uh, They get to the tunnel, and there's very little time left, so Hulk picks up a car, crushes it into a nice spherical ball, and plugs up the hole in the subway. And... Okay. Good job, Hulk. Hulk and Valkyrie, they team up to do it. Yeah, I now I don't I don't know the the mechanics of this particular thing. I've got like questions about the like water sealant nature of a car, but I'm going to assume that you know, off panel Doctor Strange does some like mystical spot welding and we're good. I, that's the only way. Otherwise, they just push that ball of steel through the freaking roof of the tunnel. Wild. Wildness <laughs> all the way around. Utterly wild. But as we turn the page, we come back to our intrepid, heroic child who comes home and he's talking about seeing a flying saucer UFO that just crashed. And. His dad is an absolute scummy parent who just immediately resorts to like, oh, are we going to, are you going to spank him or am I? And we got to beat the imagination out of him. It's just a terrible lie. And our poor dejected kid goes to his room where we see that he very clearly idolizes Captain America. He's got... The Origins of Marvel Comics by Stan Lee and all kinds of Captain America posters and statues. But he decides that that ain't the life for him and hops out the window to go investigate, deciding that Captain America is a man of action, so he shall be a man of action as well. So now one might think that this small interaction between a young boy and a father whose immediate response to his child's enthusiasm is to spank is to spank him wouldn't have a huge impact on Marvel Comics as a whole but i'm here to tell you that this is actually super important and sprawls way outside of these pages not just this young lad but specifically the way his father treats him will become integral in a part of an anti-child abuse campaign that Marvel will run decades after this. We will learn that this man on page talking about smacking his son around did in fact beat the ever-loving heck out of that son and there will be no talk of that in these issues. It will never get brought up and I just wanted to bring it up because it is really important that we understand that something small like this can be used as this is a warning sign and don't abuse your kids is basically the long and short of this one. It has major, major impacts later on. So we return to Nighthawk as he's investigating this UFO crash and he comes across the USS Enterprise. I mean the Captain America crash down in a field and begins to investigate as he sees the some of the Guardians of the Galaxy stepping out. He sees Major Vance Astro and Yondu and Martin X step out of the ship and he's trying to figure out what the heck is going on. Where did these guys come from? Now, I, I honestly think that this is just really bold because they show a Federation-like cruiser on panel and have Nighthawk say this is what they mean when they say Star Trek lives. It's blatant. It's extremely blatant. I'm 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 thinking these guys are all wild. Like I'm so surprised no one was sued over this. I wonder it makes me wonder if Marvel had the license for Star Trek comics at the time. Oh, they they that very very well maybe i mean there was that star trek x-men crossover it's it's the only way i can figure they didn't get sued for this so we round back to times square where elar is just cackling madly as he says all of these 
wild things telepathically and is just blowing things up helter skelter and at the exact same time charlie 27 is running away from the police who are shooting at him in a hospital and so (laughs) charlie 27's running away from the cops directly into a giant elar explosion which is then interrupted by the Hulk jumping on Elar. And this is where the crescendo begins to happen. So Hulk lays out Elar when he lands on him. And Strange starts trying to make demands and warn Elar about calming the heck down. But Elar tases Aragorn. Valkyrie gets knocked off and jacked up. And they start going to town. Well, Hulk turns in Dex, Elar, Chud, square in the stomach, and then jumps back and says, Hulk's hand burns like Hulk hit fire, not fish. And I gotta admit, that laid me out for a few minutes when I read that. Hulk's utter confusion. Yeah, yeah. Everything about this fight is just so over the top. It's... It's slapstick gold. It really, really is. So, Doctor Strange is using his magic against Elar, and it's not working the way that it should. Charlie 27 is watching it, and he wants to fight, but he can't risk it. Because back at the USS Captain America... We see that Martinex and the other members of the Guardians of the Galaxy are trying to track down Charlie 27 and get him back safe as soon as possible. So they all get into a very familiar machine and they teleportal themselves directly to the fight. They get beamed up. They get beamed up. They 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 beam them up. They beam them up. It's just Star Trek. My God. They get beamed up. Yeah. Heck yeah, they do. It's it's a hundred percent. This whole the whole arc that we're covering is totally Star Trek. And right in our most excellent beaming moment, our, our young intrepid hero discovers the ship and walks on board where he sees Martinix sitting at the panel. So, of course, the Guardians of the Galaxy and Nighthawk are beamed directly into the fight with Elar. As soon as Charlie 27 sees Vance and Yondu, he's like, I'm over here! And then, all of a sudden, all of the heroes are face-to-face. And... For once in the history of superhero comics, they do not immediately start fighting each other. Write it down on the calendar. Write it on the calendar. We gotta win. (laughs) But Elar immediately nopes out and flies away. And Hulk is like, oh, I got this and jumps after him. So, Doctor Strange launches himself into the air to try to follow as the Guardians trudge through the New York streets trying to find what the cause of all of this is. So, the Guardians of the Galaxy are exploring and they find in the old pawn shop owner's suitcase there was a piece of technology from the far future, a Badoon Mento programmer. But its tapes are empty, and the Guardians feel like they've come all this way for nothing. And it is exactly at that moment that Doctor Strange pulls from the original temporal phenomenon the exact same kind of device. So the battle with Elar rages on, and Elar is now salty with a tree. And he is just going to town, beating this tree up, screaming declarative statements at it telepathically as he throws it around and attempts to electrocute the tree. Doctor Strange, fortunately, is kind of starting to figure out what's going on and realizes that 
Elar is not really acting consciously, but more that he's been programmed to do what he's doing and is just mindlessly acting. Now, Doctor Strange shows off his Doctor Strangeness in that he immediately recognizes that the Guardians of the Galaxy are time travelers from the future, and the helmet was being used as a nest for electric eels, which I'm pretty sure don't live in the Hudson, but okay. And apparently the unique powers of the Badoon helmet mutated one of the eels and fused it with the contents of the recording. That's comics, folks. That's peak comics. Chef's kiss. We've we've covered... 17 episodes of cosmic stuff or 16 in one social justice episode but we've never come across anything that is quite this level of like pure diluted monster of the week comicsness and all of the psychobabble it entails and yet it is entirely delightful yeah it's it's a we were both this is one of the more excited episodes that we've had coming because it's fantastic so the defenders and the guardians continue the fight against elar with them zapping and shooting and yaka arrowing and blasting and punching elar at which point Vance Astro and Doctor Strange manage to disrupt Elar's electrical field, which has been protecting him this whole time. And Hulk and Charlie 27 team up to issue a double whammy and knock him the heck out. Valkyrie goes to finish him off because she ain't playing around. And Doctor Strange pleads that it is still a living being. And so he uses his magic to turn him back into an eel. An eel who has just been knocked the heck out by the Hulk and Charlie 27. That is, this is very and then floppy. pitches eel. that eel back into the sea. It's a very floppy. <laughs> He's very done. He's very He's tired. So done. This is also the only appearance of Elar. I want Elar back, but I know we can't have him. We don't deserve him. We do we 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 do not deserve more Elar. We'd got one floppy boy, <laughs> and that's it. Oh Elar, we miss you. But the whole thing wraps up with the defenders and the guardians at Strange's abode, casually talking over the events, and. And recapping a little bit as the little boy uh, joins in the conversation with Martin X saying, You know, I'm going to be an astronaut someday. My name even sounds like astronaut. It's Astrovig, but I'm going to change it when I grow up. Just make it Astro. Vance Astro. Uh-oh. Next up, we have... The Defenders Guardians of the Galaxy crossover, which takes place over numbers 26 through 29. All four issues were written by Steve Gerber. They were penciled by Sal Buscema. They were inked by Vince Coletta and Frank Giacoya and John Tartag. They were colored by... Al Wenzel and Irene Vartanoff. They were lettered by Gaspar Saldino, Karen Mantlo, Joe Rosen, and John Costanza. And it was edited by Len Wine and Marv Wolfman, with covers by Jill Kane, John Romita, Gaspar Saldino, Ron Wilson. Frank Giacoya, Danny Crespi, and that's all of the credits. So the story basically flows like this. We start out with Jack Norris and Valkyrie trying to discuss the situation in their relationship. 
they have some troubles and there's an earthquake that interrupts them valkyrie saves jack and we find out that weather is going crazy everywhere as the guardians and the majority of the defenders are in dr strange's abode trying to figure out what's going on so the temporal disruption of the guardians of the galaxy is causing an awful lot of chaos so we have to get the guardians of the galaxy home as quickly as possible now there is a recap of the events leading up to the guardians of the galaxy that we knew including the invasion by the martians in 2001 uh, and then the fact that by 2960 they first encountered the Alpha Centaurians, of which Yondu is one. And then the Badoon began aggressing upon the United Earth Empire and completely took over. And that's when the Guardians of the Galaxy were formed. Young Vance Astro is quite upset by this recap, saying that it was so believable that it could even happen here, couldn't it? And older Vance Astro comforts him without revealing his identity, explaining that the future is not set in stone, and if they act carefully, they can try to save things, even if it was destined to happen on this planet. So Doctor Strange, not leaving anything to chance, teleports the young Vance Astrovic home and mind-wipes him just to be sure. Now needing to get the heck out of this time and space with just a few magical words, Doctor Strange teleports the USS Captain America and all on board into space and through time. Once they get there, the team of Valkyrie, Vance Astro, Hulk, and Yondu teleport out to Earth to try to save the day, but something goes wrong. The Badoon have been monitoring the situation, and they scatter that signal, causing Martinex to lose track of where they all went. Jack Norris leaps out of the shadows, demanding to know where Barbara is and why they've killed everyone, while we learn that everyone is not actually dead. So, Valkyrie and Vance Astro wind up on a strange planet where they are assaulted by these furry and reptilian seemingly savage creatures. But as Vance Astrovic becomes angry enough to unleash his psychic powers against them, a glowing figure of light appears and tells them to follow him to get Valkyrie some much-needed aid. Back on the ship, Mr. Norris is absolutely losing his marbles. Dr. Strange tells him to chill and that they are working on the situation. Meanwhile, Yondu and Hulk have landed in stereotypical 1960s mystery world where no one speaks English. And as they try to surmise where they are and what's going on, they hear a cry for help. And when they respond, they see a lady about to be murdered by a gang of men. But when they save her, she slaps them and runs off angrily. Now, at this point, a bunch of robots come out and say that Yondu and Hulk are disrupting the Festival of Death and they must be brought to justice. So Hulk smashes, as he does, only to reveal that there is a giant robot screaming, You killed my babies, and teleports the Hulk and Yondu somewhere else from this yet again. Doctor Strange has been wired into the Captain America's computers by Martinex, and he begins scanning the galaxy and time to find out where on Earth or elsewhere our lost heroes could be. 
The Badoon see this surge in power and are quite alarmed, trying to find out what power could possibly do this. Now, back to Swamp World, the glowing figure heals Valkyrie and says that now that he has saved her, that they, Vance and Valkyrie, are in his debt, and so they have to come with him. We go back to Hulk and Yondu, who are being charged with the crime of disrupting the Festival of Death. Right at that moment, the Badoon burst in on Charlie 27 and Martin X and declare that they are going to take this new power source in the name of the Brotherhood of the Badoon. And Charlie and Martin X and Nighthawk are concerned because Doctor Strange is in such a sensitive state being wired into the computer and in his astral form. So, of course, a fight breaks out, as you would expect. Uh, there are some Zoms there, which are the zombified humans that the Badoons use as slaves. There are some Badoon warriors there as well. The people all fight valiantly until Doctor Strange manages to get a bead on Vance Astrovic, Valkyrie, and their mysterious figure of light. It's at this point that our mysterious figure takes Valkyrie and Vance to a very futuristic-looking city and declares that it is Venesia, the city of the Sisterhood of the Badoon. Vance freaks out, saying that they have to try to take over, you know, destroy this place because it's the Badoon, and our mysterious benefactor says, you don't understand, you didn't hear me. It's the Sisterhood of the Badoon, not the Brotherhood. It's different. Back on the ship, the Badoon have successfully managed to restrain the members of the Defenders and the Guardians of the Galaxy, who have been left behind from the teleport accident. Doctor Strange, however, is still traveling, so the Badoon think he's just a corpse. So he manages to escape being jailed by the Badoon at this time. We go back to 60s world with Hulk in techno bondage gear and he and Yondu are told that they now have to fight in the Super Death Sweepstakes, a game show-like thing where they are put into perilous situations and have to attempt to fight for their life, kind of akin to The Running Man. Yeah, it seems to be one part Running Man, one part Super Sweepstakes. Of all of the things that go on in these comics, this one really seems just like a product of its time. So we come back to the city of the Sisterhood of the Badoon, where the Queen comes out and gives a rundown of their history. And this is kind of the crux of the story. She explains that... Badoon evolved on this world many millennia ago, and they are, fa in fact, older than both the Kree and the Skrull, but they only recently uh, started exploring cosmically. But due to genetic defects, the men and the women are very aggressive towards each other, and so it required them to separate the men went off and developed technology while the women were left behind basically as breeding stock, but otherwise kind of mostly left alone. And the Badoon Brotherhood would show up, forcefully breed, and then take control of the young until they found out if they were male or female. And if they were female, they would be dropped back off on the planet of the Sisterhood. So in this way, the Badoon Brotherhood has essentially been keeping half of the population of their race enslaved on their home planet as breeding stock while they have been going out enslaving the rest of the galaxy. The Badoon are the worst. It even, it's even troubling in the sense that the Sisterhood of the Badoon 
are basically okay with it, saying it's not a bad system, really, for us. We have, uh, really, it's the only solution. It's basically fine, other than the forced breeding. Gosh, that's a lot to process. Yeah, it's so much. However, what the sisterhood of the Badoon didn't know, what with being incommunicado with the rest of the galaxy, is that the male Badoon were out there propagating the same kind of violence that was pushed onto the females onto other races of the galaxy. And this is the turning point for their entire society because they legitimately thought that the men Badoon were treating their slaves with compassion compared to how they were treating the women. It's bad all the way down. And so in that moment, the mysterious benefactor grows some absolutely incredible solar sails, says that the seed of Earth's salvation has been planted, and takes off into space. Just getting himself out of there. He blasts past Doctor Strange's astral form, which clues Doctor Strange in as to where he should be looking. So Doctor Strange then teleports Valkyrie and Major Vance Astro out from the Badoon Sisterhood Queen's presence and lands them on the throne room on Earth. It is at this point that we see that the Badoon are about to subject Martin X, Charlie 27, and Nighthawk to a firing squad. It doesn't take much help from Valkyrie and Vance Astro to free their comrades, and they quickly turn the tide of battle against them. Doctor Strange is still looking for Yondu and Hulk and manages to find them in their death sweepstakes. So as Hulk fights in his death sweepstakes against a bunch of mechanical ants and attempts to save a damsel in distress, meanwhile we find out that our mysterious figure is in fact Starhawk. And he returns homeward to a floating city in a dome on an asteroid where he has a super, no super normal family. Except for on the visual he sees a picture of his wife and he says to himself it is not yet time the stars beckon and he has no choice but to journey valkyrie major vance astro nighthawk charlie 27 and martin x charge into the heat of battle and begin fighting for liberty so Hulk continues his fight, leveling out all of the ants and the mountain they were fighting on, winning his super death sweepstakes, teleporting him and the now de-stressed damsel back into the game show room. Hulk, of course, is having none of this at this point and grabs the game show host, cocks back a giant arm to knock him out and teleports away, instead absolutely leveling a Badoon. So it is at this point that chaos truly begins to reign on planet Earth. Even Valkyrie's erstwhile husband or i guess barbara's ex-husband at this point wants to get in on the fight because this is earth and it's his planet too the combination of the guardians of the galaxy and the defenders are turning the tide against the Badoon, and all of the people of earth are getting in on it so dr strange in the way that he does manages to top it all off with some grand mystical gestures. He teleports Jack around to free a bunch of different people from their cages so that the people can fight back. 
Jack says, well, why didn't you just, you know, zap everybody yourself, zap all the Badoon yourself? And Strange says, well, it's meaningless if they don't have to fight for their own power, which is some real nonsense. But that's what he says. And it's funny, too, because then at the end, Doctor Strange literally causes all of the Badoon on the planet to fall asleep. Yeah. After they have freed all of the Earth. Yeah. So Starhawk shows back up shows his absolutely dreamy space eyes to Jack and Doc Strange. And they realize the way the world has got to have to be. So this is when Doctor Strange, of course, puts all the Badoon to sleep. The world is saved. And everybody congratulates themselves as Doctor Strange teleports everybody back where they belong. That was a lot. Gosh, that's a lot. It's so much. But one of the reasons why we wanted to talk about this all in one chunk is because it really is just a single story that really wraps up this initial bit with the Guardians of the Galaxy and the Defenders. We'll go back through now and cover a few major points that we want to touch on a little bit extra before we close out the episode. The... First thing I really want to I want to talk about real quick is this this Jack Norris Barbara Valkyrie situation. I gotta say, uh, as a married man, uh, this was really hard to read. It's 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 very well written and it was very painful to read and honestly spurred a couple of conversations between my wife and I because you can feel for both of these situations and when you do you feel differently about it on the one hand as a husband i completely feel for jack here i mean i don't even know what i would do if i came home from work one day and my wife had no idea who i was and said that she was somebody else now and just and said that she was in his guardian goddess charged with shuttling the souls of dead heroes to Asgard. I mean, you got to you got to add that layer of absurdity in there to really Right, and had evidence to back up the claim. Like, I don't even know how you process that. And I would I you know, I've been married to my wife for a long time. We've been friends even longer. It would level me, you know. I would be pretty desperate to try to help her remember our marriage and our life together and so i feel for him on the other hand valkyrie is legitimately a hundred percent a different person now and she has no emotional or mental or physical connection to jack norris and makes it very clear again with evidence so when he grabs her in her in his arms and tries to kiss her or does kiss her to try to get her to remember it's painful and heartbreaking in both directions. On the one hand, you know, he's just desperate to win his wife back. On the other hand, this is not his wife. So, I mean, it's just... And it really does not help that he is one of the first guys to jump in and be that annoying baseline human bystander. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's, it's a very difficult situation and it's a lot to process so i mean well well written though i mean and then immediately the the peril of the crumbling hillside and valkyrie forgetting all of that awkwardness for the moment all of that uncomfortable situation and rushing to save him so i read it differently in that i at no point in reading that because i'm not married I did not have nearly the amount of emotional bandwidth to spare for Jack. It's interesting to me because on the one hand, he mostly is not sympathetic. Um, and he, I don't think he's he's necessarily intended to be written as a sympathetic viewpoint. But just as somebody who is married and has been married for over a decade now and has known my wife for you know over two decades now like gosh trying to think about what it would be like to come home to this reality right here right now i mean 
that's that's a, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. That's that's a lot to have to go through. You know, that's that's terrible. You you know, I hadn't thought about it from that perspective, and that is extremely valuable. I thank you for thank you for bringing that up because I was coming at it from a perspective of who's this Jack guy? Why he's in my comic? Why does Doctor Strange even let him in the spaceship to begin with? You know, because I didn't necessarily feel like he was adding anything. But when you bring up the the tragic nature and aspect of that relationship where, like, someone's wife is gone, right? Like, that, that does make it seem a lot more understandable of why they let this cheap Rick Jones knockoff bum around with them. Yeah, and to be clear, like, I don't have all the backstory. I don't know if, if Barbara and he were happy or not before all of this. I, I, I truly don't have that backstory. It's it's me injecting myself into the story a little bit, uh, or a lot of it, depending on how you view it. But it's it's completely fair to view this from Valkyrie's perspective of this guy, you know, grabbing her and kissing her against her will, which is really bad that's not good but at the same time you have this other side of it that is just like i don't know how your brain processes that honestly you know what else is really bad and not good the badoon yeah yeah all the badoon are the worst it's all the way down oh my goodness there's not a single redeeming moment they are so bad and they continue to be so bad throughout this whole thing like every time they talk they're speaking down to our heroes or literally to anyone they are speaking to it turns out they're the ones running this death sweepstakes like there is no part of their and they're the weird sexual dimorphism thing like that is even and it's bad no it's bad from both sides because i mean the way that the the sisterhood of the badoon is like yeah sure they come and you know force us to breed with them whenever they're ready like it's fine that's the way it needs to be like that's totally okay there's no there's no sense that there's any any struggle against that at all like that 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 situation that power dynamic is just totally accepted i mean they from their perspective i can see an argument for they were literally enslaved by the males for thousands if not tens of thousands of years while the males were developing technology and so the males decided to leave. And so in essence, de facto, the sisterhood was allowed freedom through a lack of presence effect. But the freedom that they were allowed came at the cost of reproductive freedom. Yeah. And then because they were isolated from the galaxy, I legitimately think that the sisterhood at this point is acting from the perspective of a abuse victim who has been successfully isolated from the rest of the galaxy and is like, no, no, they're fine, right? My abuser is fine. And then these humans just show up and go, no, your abusers are not fine. They're abusers and they're abusing other people all throughout the galaxy. And then the sisterhood have to be like, hmm. So let's move on to the Guardians of the Galaxies themselves. We kind of start really getting into who they are as individuals a lot more and how they work as a team a lot more on these issues, which is something I really enjoyed reading through. We learn more of their history and we start to see personalities coming through. Yeah, I definitely appreciate Martin X a lot as a character more in this than I did in the original stuff that we covered. And Charlie 27 is just a hunk. 
Charlie 27 is a himbo. He is a slab of beef, that's for sure. And I really honestly like, like, given their background, I really like his whole, like, that strong anti-violent stance that he takes against humans of, you know, like, there's so few of us left, we gotta be good to each other, we gotta take care of each other, and it's, like, really that simple to him, and I really like that. Yeah, the, these Guardians are absolutely fascinating, and... I really enjoy them going forward. I really enjoy the 90s stuff. And this is really great foundational information about what their early books were like before they ever got a chance to really stand on their own. It's it's so interesting that they're still in this in this kind of weird floating phase right now where they they just barely show up at all as a blip on the screen anywhere. But they really are are developing developing in a fascinating way i really like uh vance astro's very careful but informative telling of their past even to his younger self and spinning everything into a more hopeful way for his younger self of you know we can take action we can we can act to prevent these things from happening even if it's not this planet that it happened to wink wink nudge nudge yes and interestingly enough it it won't be him right like that's the very interesting thing about vance astrovic slash marvel boy slash vance astro is that the boy that we see in the defenders in theory never becomes the man who we see actually being that astronaut he instead develops his mutant powers young and becomes marvel boy instead <laughs> i'm i'm definitely looking forward to getting there for sure it's it's just a team that combined with yondu the four of them just have a very good dynamic that is is truly enjoyable to read i agree and last but certainly not least, we have the new figure of Starhawk, who is rounding out the team. Now, I find Starhawk's shtick to be fascinating, as he is the one who knows. Clearly a cosmic-level figure with some amount of cosmic awareness, Yet at the same time, seems to just also be a nice guy. There's a there's a weird way that he's presented where he's both this demanding cosmic figure and simultaneously normal dude. Yeah, he's he comes across like, especially in that moment where he goes back to his home, even though he's only there momentarily, he's got, like, three normal kids. He's got a lawn. He's got a picket fence. Like, then he's got his wife on the projector screen. He's like, oh, gotta go. Got space stuff to do. It's it's super normal and, and very cosmic at the same yes. moment. Now, the interesting bit of Starhawk is that... We learn over time that he has cosmic awareness in that he can see both forward and backwards in time as a part of his abilities. But what is going on in these comics here is that he is also having that Captain Marvel Rick Jones thing going on with his wife. Yeah, see, and I can't wait to learn more about that. Yeah, it is absolutely fascinating stuff, and his design is just so good. Like, he has this blocky kind of helmet, but the solar sails that, like, come off of the helmet fit in really interesting with the solar sails that come off of his like shoulders that connect to his boots it creates this amazing flying profile 
that has to be one of like my very favorite things in Guardians of the Galaxy and has been for decades. Yeah, he definitely has a great design. Also, I like that when he is start when he starts communicating about like that he's the one that knows and they have to just listen to him. Like his eyes do that whole starscapes galaxies thing. That's that's really cool. That's something I always dig seeing when it shows up. Well, that wraps up our coverage for today. You can find these issues collected in Essential Series Defenders, Volume 1, Number 2. They are also available in Guardians of the Galaxy, Tomorrow's Avengers, Number 1. Now, of course, if you would like to know more about the Defenders, there is more of their book, but also the solo series for Hulk and Doctor Strange. If you would like to know more about the Guardians of the Galaxy, you can catch them in Marvel Presents Volume 1, 5 through 12, and then later in some Avengers. And all of these things have been collected in Guardians of the Galaxy Tomorrow's Avengers Volume 1 and 2, and that covers everything up until their 1990 solo series. If sacred places are spared the ravages of war, then make all places sacred. And if the holy people are to be kept harmless from war, then make all peoples holy. This has been Artifacts of Infinity. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Everett. We will see you in the infinite cosmos. Cosmos.